Hey Irish fans, Alex Painter here to remind you that if you or your company has screen printing or embroidery needs, look no further than our pals at wcscreens.com. Nationwide shipping, check. Wholesale pricing, absolutely. They are indeed the gold standard of the industry and fervent supporters of this show and your fighting Irish. Their service is as tight as a Joe Montana spiral, so give them a holler at wcscreens.com. And on with the show. It's that time of year, folks. Spring. I know for many that signals the Irish Blue and Gold Spring Game is coming, and that is very true. And we will absolutely talk about that in the coming weeks. But for millions of people, spring also means baseball. Would you have guessed that for many decades, baseball ruled supreme on Notre Dame's campus as their hands-down favorite and most popular sport? Today, we're going to talk about the fascinating history of Irish baseball. So put on your eye black and grab your bat and glove. This is Onward to Victory. Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and this is episode number 78 of the most exhaustive, accessible source of Notre Dame and Notre Dame football history since 2019. We're going to drastically change gears here today on the ladder, but as always, I am so happy to be here and fortunate enough to have the opportunity to share more about the history of our beloved Notre Dame and fighting Irish, and I'm glad you have elected to join me today for this offering. And again, today, as opposed to talking about the Fighting Irish of the Gridiron, we're going to turn our focus to the Fighting Irish of the Baseball Diamond. We have quite a bit to cover, so quickly, though, as I traditionally do, a brief commercial for the previous episode, number 77. It was the first installment of a new Iconic Sites of Notre Dame miniseries, where I covered the origins of the Hesburgh Library and the ever-so-famous mural on the front, the one internationally known as Touchdown Jesus. So the plan is to do several of these, so that way folks can use them as a de facto tour of campus. Uh, When I go to campus and take in all the amazing sites, architecture, lore, whatever it may be, I love knowing as much history and backstory as I can. So the idea is that You could even theoretically put in your earbuds and listen to the 20 or so minute story about the library or while walking around it or experiencing it firsthand. But also inversely, uh, the episodes could ideally really bring those spots to life for those who don't have the opportunity to visit campus in person. And we can hopefully use all of these kind of paired together as a virtual tour of Notre Dame. I think I may even pull the audience to see which location to do next, but... As a quick reminder, 
whether you are listening to this in your car or on your phone or in your earbuds, make sure that you are liking, subscribing, leaving a review, anything. Everything helps, and I am deeply appreciative of it. And speaking of deeply appreciative, I'd like to give a shout-out to the Onward to Victory Consensus All-Americans. That is those special individuals who contribute to the show monetarily. These folks have either contributed significantly in the past or are currently donating to the show, and they include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana, and Mike Johnson from Oak Park, Illinois. Thank you all, and if you'd like to join the ranks of the Consensus All-Americans yourself, please feel free to visit the virtual collection baskets at paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. All right, to the task at hand. Irish baseball, especially the early years of the game on campus. Now, I have to share with you right out of the chute here that I am, in fact, a pretty big baseball fan, uh, a member of the Society for American Baseball Research even. Though I've done a lot of work here with Notre Dame and Notre Dame football, the majority of my research work is actually centered around baseball, and particularly the Negro Leagues. So perhaps this episode is a bit of a guilty pleasure. Nonetheless, we have lots to cover. So let's go ahead and set the stage. All right, epic music was needed because we are heading back to 1842, which was the year that Notre Dame was founded by the venerated Reverend Father Edward Soren of the Order of the Holy Cross. And if you're here listening to this episode, the chances are you already know this practically delicious piece of irony I am about to deliver to you right out of the chute, and that is, of course, Soren was not Irish or of Irish descent, as his beloved campus would soon become synonymous with. No. On the contrary, Soren was a Frenchman, and one who never knew when to quit at that. But the first couple decades of the university's history were fraught with financial peril and a fairly continuous enrollment struggle. At the time, South Bend didn't have a huge Catholic presence outside of the university. This would, of course, dramatically change in the future decades, but in 1861, the American Civil War broke out and forever changed the landscape and trajectory of the United States forever. And if you're curious about Notre Dame's involvement in the Civil War, I'd kindly suggest listening to any one of the now five-part Notre Dame in the Civil War miniseries. But the Civil War did more than just stitch the country back together, uh, if you will. First, Notre Dame's enrollment saw a bit of a surge during this time. And it's true, South Bend was remote enough that many families sent their children, even Southern families, mind you, to Notre Dame so that they'd be far away from the raging conflict. Union General William Tecumseh Sherman was one of those fathers who did just that. But secondly, it also helped spread the sport of baseball. Now, how was that? Well, your average Union soldier was either a farmer or an Irish or German farmer who had recently emigrated to the States. I am looking at that somewhat simplistically, but that's not far from the truth. There were, of course, other ethnic groups and occupations as well, but farmers and Irish and German farmers, well, those represented the lion's share of 
the Union troops. So again, you have mostly farmers who are accustomed to working, you know, 12, 15 hours a day hard labor. And suddenly they are thrust into army camps with little to do but sleep and drill and eat and drill, drill, sleep and repeat. So these soldiers were often desperate to find activities to kill time in camp. So alas, the burgeoning game of baseball began to spread rapidly. And since nearly 45% of the Union Army were immigrants or sons of immigrants, baseball became a way for this population to assimilate to America. So now on to post-war, 1865. Baseball continues to spread across America, particularly through those immigrant groups, which just so happened to make up a large portion of the Notre Dame student body. So I know you see this intersection, and I know you're picking up what I'm putting down here. But I'll give the assist to campus historian Arthur Hope when he wrote, quote, The first team was organized in 1865, team being baseball team, by a senior, Matthew Campion, who later became a priest and pastor at St. Mary's Church in Lafayette, Indiana. During the few years preceding 1865, a cricket club failed to arouse sufficient interest and was dropped. Baseball, however, soon blossomed into the most popular campus sport. End quote. 1865, like clockwork, immediately after the American Civil War. Is this merely a coincidence that the game got its sea legs under it on campus immediately after the conflict? Of course not. The pastime continued to bloom, though, in the coming years throughout the 1860s. Now, if you want to know about Notre Dame baseball, Notre Dame alum and historian Cappy Gagnon is your guy. According to his book about Notre Dame baseball, uh, he wrote that in 1869, 185 Notre Dame students were members of a baseball club. Now, if you're thinking, wow, 185, that's quite impressive. It is impressive, indeed, because according to Gagnon's research, that was nearly 90% of the student body. So it was certainly recreational, but it also had reached the level of participation that baseball on campus was also something of a social endeavor as well. 90% of the student body, though, took part in baseball in 1869. In 1871, and this is according to an article in the school paper, there were seven different baseball clubs on campus. There was the Star of the West Club, the Star of the East Club, the Juanita Club, the University 9, the Excelsior Baseball Club. I imagine that would have been Stan Lee's favorite club of Marvel Comics. There was also the Young American Club and the Pickwick Club, but each club had at least two teams. After making a quick count through the article, yes indeed, there were about 18 teams on campus if you were to split them among these different clubs. So let me throw out a few names here. In 1868, a man by the name of Adrian Anson was a member of the Juanita Club. He would later have the nickname of Cap and was an absolute baseball legend. In fact, he was the best baseball player of the 19th century, virtually bar none. Cap Anson was most notably associated with the Chicago White Stockings and was the first player in baseball history to reach that venerated 3,000 hit mark. There was a time that if you got 3,000 hits in baseball, that was your ticket to the Hall of Fame. So he would have reached 3,000 hits decades before the Hall of Fame even existed. 
Uh, but he was also an integral part of the beginning of baseball's color barrier in the 1880s. But we can save that story for another day. Another guy on campus in the early 1870s was named Patrick Dillon. But you can call him Packy. So Packy Dillon was the star catcher of the Juanita Club. Seems like the Juanita Club had their fair share of good ball players. And he also played for the University 9. But by 1875 he'd make his major league debut with the St. Louis Red Stockings. Also, perhaps you were aware that the first major league baseball game took place in, drumroll please, my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah, it's true. It was a game played between the Cleveland Forest Cities and the Fort Wayne Kikiangas on May 4th, 1871. If you frequent Interstate 70, which cuts across the heart of Indiana, I guess among other states, there are actually a few billboards to celebrate the game. But anyway, the very first Major League Baseball game did indeed take place in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and one of the founding members of the Kikiangas was a man named George Mayer. He was a Notre Dame man, and to say Mayer ran in the baseball circles was true, and perhaps he ran too closely in the baseball circles. His wife actually left him for baseball sporting goods magnate Albert Spaulding. Yes, that's Spaulding. So when you read about the first major league game between the Kikiangas and the Forest Cities in 1871 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, don't forget that there is an indelible Notre Dame connection there. But during this time that we're talking about, football was largely relegated to a much smaller number of students playing, as well as space on campus. In fact, an 1894 topographical survey of Notre Dame revealed that there were five different baseball fields strewn about the campus grounds, as opposed to just one football field. But by 1900, Notre Dame had already sent over a dozen players to Major League Baseball and even more to the ever-growing Minor League Baseball system at this time. Back in November of 2022, we talked about Louis Sokalexis, a Native American who spent time with Notre Dame's baseball team in 1897 before being expelled from school before the baseball season started and then becoming a sensation with the Cleveland Spiders as a rookie just a few short months later. Make no mistake, baseball was huge. Sock Alexis was a fantastic player at Holy Cross College. Not the Holy Cross across the street from Notre Dame, but the one in Worcester, Massachusetts. And he transferred to Notre Dame because it was a great place to play baseball. Also around the turn of the century, Notre Dame regularly had the opportunity to put minor league teams on their preseason schedule. So for instance, they used to play the Toledo Mudhens of the American Association, as well as the South Bend Greenstockings of the Central League, or the South Bend Greens as they were also commonly called. They were a Class B minor league team, and some of you may remember the name Chet Grant. Now Chet Grant's played a pretty heavy role in some past episodes, but he was just kind of a, a luminary in Notre Dame football and Notre Dame history. 
and his family actually came to South Bend from Defiance, Ohio, because his father had taken a job as manager of the South Bend Green Stocking. So small world, but so for instance, in the 1903 season, I think Notre Dame went four and one against the South Bend Green Stockings, and they also I think I think they went one and five against the Toledo Mudhens. But it did show that even though they were a collegiate team, they were just as good, or in some cases perhaps better than many of their minor league contemporaries. But here's another one for you history nuts. Would you guess that Frank E. Herring was named the first varsity baseball coach in 1897? It's worth noting that he was also serving as the head football and basketball coach at this time. And not for nothing, he was an early vocal proponent of Mother's Day in the We talked about him in length during episode 61 back in April 2022. So, but in 1900, the team was actually awful special. The 1900 Notre Dame baseball squad only had 12 players. So a lot of the players were playing multiple positions, obviously, but out of the 12, four would eventually make it to the major leagues. This included, again, according to Cappy Gagnon, Red Morgan, Philip Peaches O'Neill, Norwood Gibson, and Burt Keeley. So some folks might be like, Peaches O'Neill, Philip Peaches O'Neill. How do you get that nickname? Well, Peaches played catcher. And so it was during particularly tense moments of the game. And if he got the sense that maybe his teammates and fielders were kind of becoming a bundle of nerves, he would try to calm everybody down and relax folks. But he would do so by hollering, Peaches! Well, and apparently it worked because that actually became his nickname for pretty much henceforward. But something else about that 1900 team, not only did it have four future major leaguers, but a man named Charles Stahl took over the team that year. Now, his nickname was Chick, so Chick Stahl, and he was born in nearby Avila, Indiana, and he eventually made Fort Wayne, speaking of, his home. But what was a little different about Chick taking over the team was that he was actually a current Major League Baseball player. Chick suited up in the outfield for the Boston Bean Eaters. Yes, that was their real name, and he had made his debut in 1897. So the Bean Eaters would soon change their name to the Americans, by the way, and then they'd be renamed the Red Sox in 1908. Team names were a little bit... Uh, They were a little fluid at this time. But when Chick took the reins of the Notre Dame baseball program in 1900, he was more than just a major leaguer. He was the Bean Eaters' best hitter by far and had a batting average of 351 the previous season, which was seventh best across the league and better than a guy named Hannes Wagner, mind you. So they had an absolute baseball star coaching the team in 1900, and that team again laden with future big league talent, went 15-2 and that season. And uh, though Chick once had six hits in a single game and was a hero on the 1903 Boston Americans World Series winning team, which was the first modern World Series, by the way, he is sadly known for how he passed away, and that's perhaps how he is known best today. And before moving on to this next anecdote, I am going to throw out a quick warning for sensitive material uh, regarding self-harm, so please skip forward about a minute if you'd like to bypass. So in 1907, Chick was named manager of the Boston team. So this was about seven years or so after he coached at Notre Dame. 
and he was one of baseball's most recognizable names at this point. But while he was down with his team in West Baden, Indiana for spring training that 1907 season, which, by the way, some folks might be like, West Baden, Indiana for spring training? You know, what happened to Florida? What happened to Arizona? Well, West Baden and nearby French Lick, which is, of course, the future home of Larry Bird, but they were destinations for spring training, and that's because of the mineral springs that they sat on. And at the time, of course, and still today, the mineral springs are considered therapeutic. So these ballplayers around the turn of the century lived pretty hard scrabble lives and grew up in very tough backgrounds. And honestly, just we didn't know as much about health and wellness at that time. So they probably treated their bodies rather poorly during the offseason. So the idea was they'd come and kind of dry out in the mineral springs during spring training and kind of get back into playing shape. But while Chick was there with the Boston Americans in 1907, he actually swallowed carbolic acid, which had been prescribed for a sore on his foot. Now, where it becomes interesting is that no one is positively sure why Chick became so despondent so quickly, though there are some theories which... I won't necessarily discuss here, but his final words were said to his teammate Jimmy Collins as some variation of, quote, I couldn't help it. I did it, Jim. It was killing me, and I couldn't stand it, Jim. In another version, Stahl cryptically just stated, quote, it drove me to it. So sadly, Chick died about 15 minutes later, and he is buried in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I don't bring up Chick to upset anyone, of course, but he is technically the second head coach in Notre Dame baseball history. So therefore, he is of great consequence and importance. But he was also an excellent turn-of-the-century ball player whose name should still be evoked above and beyond his tragic passing, as I wouldn't be lying if I didn't mention that, he, again, he is very noteworthy for this tragic ending. And speaking candidly, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Chick. As I've mentioned now several times on this very episode, I am a Fort Wayne guy, and he was kind of a Fort Wayne guy as well. I mentioned he's buried in Fort Wayne, and he made Fort Wayne his home. And if you happen to be in the area, Fort Wayne that is, they have his cleats from the 1907 spring training on display at the Fort Wayne History Center. So if you're in the area, I'd strongly suggest you check it out. Uh, I took a photo of them a few years ago while I was on a visit, so if you are interested in seeing that, I'd be happy to send it over to you. Shoot me an email, onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com, and I will send it your way if you're curious. But like the football team, we're marching on now. The baseball team made Cartier Field their home for the first few decades of the 1900s. Cartier, which was the subject of episode number 56 back in January 2022, was a state-of-the-art facility for the time, and quite a boon for Irish athletics. So throughout the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, quite a number of dignitaries, so to speak, coached at Notre Dame. This included yet another current major leaguer in catcher Lou Krieger in 1907. He had actually played against Notre Dame in 1903 while he was a member of the Toledo Mudhens, and he was actually a teammate of Chick Stalls in Boston, and one of the personal catchers to the famous pitcher Cy Young. Yeah, that guy. The one whose name is on the award given to the best pitcher each and every year. So Lou Krieger, who coached Notre Dame in 1907, was one of his catchers. 
And what many folks may not realize is that while Jess Harper was coaching Knut Rockne and many others on the football field from 1913 through 1917, he was also serving as the baseball coach as well. Gus DeRay, Rockne's teammate and quarterback, who served as head coach in 1919 and 1920 for the baseball team, actually preceded Harper. Walter Hallis, who was the brother of Chicago Bears founder and owner George Papa Bear Hallis, proceeded DeRay. So there you go, Jess Harper, Gus DeRay, and Walter Hallis. And as a quick interlude, the aforementioned Cappy Gagnon and I were emailing about some of the best Notre Dame baseball players who also played football. So I rattled off a few to him, including Notre Dame's first football All-American, Lewis Salmon, their first Heisman Trophy winner, and Angelo Bertelli, as well as more modern-day players such as Jeff Samarja and Cole Komet. All four of those men played both baseball and football at Notre Dame. Cappy added George Gipp, which I couldn't believe I forgot. <laughs> Though Gipper's baseball career was very short and fairly humorous, but he also said Johnny Lujak and Frank Jacobs, who was on the 1988 National Championship team and was also drafted by the New York Mets in 1991, among others. He actually kind of schooled me a little bit, and that's okay. But moving forward in our somewhat uh, chronological timeline here, you can't talk about Notre Dame without the following name. Jake Klein. Coach Klein was head of the Notre Dame baseball program for 42 years. 42 years. From 1934 season through the 1975 season, he is, as you might imagine, the winningest coach in program history with 558 wins. So, Coach Klein was a Williamsport, Pennsylvania native, coincidentally where the Little League World Series is played, and he also played at Notre Dame. He received, actually, three varsity letters while playing for Jess Harper on the diamond. So, he served in the Army during World War I, and then he kind of bounced around the country during the 1920s, where he played and managed various semi-professional baseball teams before where he wound up back in South Bend in 1931 after taking a job as the freshman baseball coach. Just three years later then, he earned the head job in 1934. But he wasn't a one-trick pony, if you will. He also taught mathematics at the university and was considered a very good professor. Or, as Coach Klein himself would like to say, I wasn't just a jock. Coach Klein also kept the program not just alive during World War II, but thriving. Reputedly, he'd have nearly 200 guys come out for tryouts each year. That's just astonishing. That is an enormous amount. But when Red Sox great and future Hall of Famer and Triple Crown winner Carl Yastrzemski, yet another Boston Connect to Irish baseball, passed through the program in the late 1950s, well, Klein was his coach. And just before Yaz arrived on the scene, Klein had guided the Irish to the 1957 College World Series. This is incredibly significant because they wouldn't make the tournament for a second time until 2002. And, as many probably remember, the Irish made the College World Series in 2022 for a third time. Just a third time since 1957. That first time was with Coach Jake Klein. 
1970, near the end of his career, he stated in a June 1st, 1970 article with the Chicago Tribune that, quote, being around kids keeps you young, plus living right. He added that, quote, drinking good bourbon keeps you healthy, end quote. I like this guy. Coach Klein passed away in 1989. And though the stadium right there adjacent to the Joyce Center is today called Frank Eck Stadium, where the modern Irish baseball team plays, the facility's full name is Jake Kleinfield at Frank Eck Stadium. So current major leaguers who played at Notre Dame include manager Craig Council, Kevin Biggio, who is the son of Baseball Hall of Famer Craig Biggio, Trey Mancini, A.J. Pollock, and among others. But after a wildly successful 2022, Sean Stifler was named the next head baseball coach of the Fighting Irish. He replaced Link Jarrett and became the latest Notre Dame coach in a long, successive line. Starting with Frank E. Herring, with stops at Chick Stahl, Jess Harper, and Jake Klein, among many others, along the way. So, there you go. A baseball episode from a football podcast. I hope you enjoyed, and I'll be right back with Show Wrap. Alright, well, I actually missed one anecdote. I can't believe I did it, but it's here in my notes, but... Um, so when I mentioned Louis Sokalexis, when he came to Notre Dame in 1897 from uh, Holy Cross, he didn't come alone. He came with a guy named Mike Powers, which was you know, a good friend of his and uh, a former teammate. So they kind of came to South Bend part and parcel together. And Mike Powers would eventually become a really, really good Notre Dame baseball player. And a studious one at that. He would eventually obtain his MD and become a practicing physician. So he ended up garnering the nickname of Doc Powers. But he joined the Philadelphia Athletics in 1901. So he actually played for Connie Mack and he was a catcher. And so in 1909, the Philadelphia Athletics move into Scheib Park which would eventually become known as Connie Mack Stadium. But think about it. In 1909, the stadium opens, and the Philadelphia, whether it was the Athletics or the Phillies, stayed in Scheib Park until 1970. So over six decades. But the very first game at Scheib Park in April of 1909, Doc Powers is behind the plate, and he suffers an injury, at least it's reputed that he suffered an injury. Either he crashed into a wall or he dove for a ball. Powers himself actually said he might have eaten a cheese sandwich before the game. That really upset his stomach. But either way, after this first game played at Scheib Park, this man was in serious pain. So much so that he ended up at the hospital and undergoing an emergency surgery that first night. Now, according to an article from medium.com, the doctors opened him up and found that his intestines were gangrious. So something happened. Perhaps what happened on that particular day during that particular ball game exacerbated it. But however, the longtime catcher of the athletics, again, this is when Connie Mack was uh, kind of the manager owner of the team. He passed away less than two weeks later. Um, and so He's kind of unofficially 
considered one of the ball players who suffered an injury on the field and passed away as a result, but it's not conclusive. But it's always kind of interesting to enter that bit of trivia because, as some may know, 1920 for the Cleveland Indians, Ray Chapman was hit by a pitch during a game against the New York Yankees, and he effectively dropped dead right then and there while walking to first base. And so some theorize that Mike Powers would have been a precursor to Ray Chapman as someone who died as a result of injuries suffered on the baseball field. Now, it's, again, hard to say if that's 100% true, but obviously something probably happened that day that probably exacerbated a pre-existing condition because I have to believe, based on the surgeon's findings and the, the discovery of gangrene in his intestines, that maybe that's not something that you develop that quickly. I... Again, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I studied history, not medicine. So, uh, but anyways, I apologize that that didn't make the meat of the episode, if you will. So I hope folks have stuck around to hear it here towards the end. But as I was reviewing my notes, I was like, damn it, you forgot Mike Powers. So I figured I could at least shoehorn it in here at the end. But I really hope you've enjoyed this ride here going through Notre Dame's baseball history. Kind of felt right from a timing standpoint. The World Baseball Classic is going on right now. Spring training is in the air and opening day is coming right up. And Notre Dame's baseball history is quite frankly really interesting. The folks who intersected with the program is a very eclectic, interesting bunch, and some are very well connected to Notre Dame football lore. So I figured, if not anything else, well, it seemed kind of appropriate. So have a very, very busy offseason here planned for the podcast. I will be going up to the spring game here with my family, the Blue and Gold game. And so if you have plans to go and you want to connect, feel free to shoot me an email at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com. I will be doing a contest of sorts. I'm actually going to be linking up with Augie's locker room to do some gift certificates as prizes. So please, during the spring and summer, be on the lookout for that. That's coming and details are also forthcoming. But I don't know about you. I am really excited for the start of baseball as I always am. But boy, I am counting down the days until that blue and gold game here in late April. So podcast will have a lot to say about it. That's just a small part of the offseason plans, as is the upcoming contest. If you would like to donate to the podcast and join the consensus All-Americans, please visit paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. Whether it's a one-time donation or ongoing monthly support, big or small, please know that it is appreciated. If you're not in a position where you can donate, that's okay too. Please like, share, subscribe, do whatever it is you have to do to make sure not only you're getting all the latest episodes, but man, your Irish love and friends and family are too. So I appreciate any and all the support that you all have thrown here as we are actually getting closer and closer, inching towards the show's fourth year anniversary. I'd like to thank Joseph Rakish, whose song Knut Rockney serves as the show's theme song. If you're curious where you can find that, it's Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, YouTube, Wherever you digest music, man, Joseph Rakish, Knut Rockney, you'll find it there. So I had better sign off. Please, again, make sure you're following the Facebook page, or if you just want to drop the show an email, I read every email that comes through. So if you're not of the Facebook persuasion, you just want to keep in contact with me, I'm always checking that email. So feel free, again, onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. So with that, I had better sign off on this thing. This has been Onward to Victory. And for today, a Notre Dame baseball podcast. 
And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.